no matter uh, how long or how short you may have attended churches, um, I wonder if you have ever felt a sense of distance from God. In other words, uh, you may know that your faith in Jesus saves you, but there are times that uh, you and I may feel like there's a silence or, or a wide chasm when it comes to experiencing him in our daily lives. And so this sense of se- separation, particularly during this season, is compounded by the turmoil of experiencing a pandemic and experiencing uh, politics and, and political unrest. And uh, most of all, probably uh, the inability for us to gather together and encourage one another. Uh, if so, I want to encourage you that you're not alone. I want to assure you that uh, throughout all of human history, God's people have experienced seasons where they felt disconnected from God. And so I believe this morning that we're going to receive some encouragement and some hope to bridge this distance through the word of God this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Hebrews chapter 9. We're in this series called Anchored, where we're discovering as turbulence in our lives causes us to drift from our faith, that Jesus is a better hope, an anchor of hope for our souls. And so for the Hebrew Christians back then and for us now, that this letter is a call for us to hang on to Jesus because he is greater than all of the other people and pursuits and possibilities in which you and I tend to place our hopes. Now, we talked about last time in chapter 8, there was an invitation for people to draw close to God by Jesus, a high priest of a new and better covenant relationship instead of its shadow, the Old Testament religious rituals, moving us from external rules about God to internal relationship with God and writing his will and his word directly into our hearts. Now, in chapter 9, we're going to discover that this new covenant isn't simply a new set of rules replacing the old ones, but instead how Jesus, as this greater high priest, comes to us and how he builds a bridge between that distance between us and God. And now, today, I'm going to warn you in advance, today is a little bit more of a contemplative message. And so I'm going to invite you to spend some time, spend moments reflecting on on how the Word of God is trying to speak to you, especially about distance and about Jesus. So let's pick up Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened 
as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So let's stop right there for a moment. In verse 1 and 2, the Old Testament points people to God through the worship and wonder of this earthly tabernacle tent that that was experienced in the Old Testament. And so what you have there is in the outer room, what's called the holy place, there are all these worship items, items revealing who God is. You have the lampstand that points to God as the source of light and life against darkness and sin. And then you had a table laid out with the bread of his presence, showing that he is aware of our daily needs and that he provides for us our daily bread. Then in verses 3 to 5, we discover there's this thick curtain that separates the holy place from the inner sanctuary of the most holy place. In other words, separating people from from direct access to God. Because God is holy, we are not, and that is a problem. And so what would happen is the high priest would approach this most holy place, and outside of it was this golden uh, altar of incense. And he would fill that altar with these burning, purifying coals before he's permitted to enter, symbolizing how God would be cleansing him of his own sinfulness as well before entering the holy presence of God. And then as he passes through the curtain, the main feature inside this most holy place is this chest, this golden Ark of the Covenant that was filled with manna, the Aaron the high priest's staff, and also uh, the stone tablets from Mount Sinai containing um, not just the Ten Commandments, but, but the instruction, the covenant of God. And so all these things, this golden ark was filled with reminders of God's provision, God's ministry to them, and God's law to them. So all these things, the Ark of the Covenant represents the covenant relationship between God and his people. Now, most important feature about this Ark of the Covenant was on top of this chest was what's called the mercy seat. It was basically a throne where the very glory of God himself would rest, encircled by these sculpted wings of golden angels. And so all these things inside the tabernacle tent, inside this place of worship, all point to the glory and the holiness of God. So these are all the items of worship. What's the activity of worship? In verses 6 through 7, all the regular priests would use these items in the first section in the holy place of the, of the tabernacle tent to continue performing their regular ministry. But they were never permitted to enter into the second section. Only once a year, and only the high priest would be allowed to pass through that thick curtain into the Holy of Holies entering the very presence of the living God, and then he would pour blood on top of that mercy seat as a sacrifice for the sins of himself and for all of the people of the nation. Now, here's the point of this passage. So pay attention. In verses 8 through 10, it talks about, by this, by the priest being required to continuously make sacrifices for sin, that the Holy Spirit, God himself, reveals that people are not able to genuinely approach the presence of God while this ministry of the old tabernacle remains active. Why not? Why is God showing us this? Aren't their worship and their sacrifices a good thing? 
Look at verse 9. Here's the problem. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipers. That means that it cannot cleanse us internally and spiritually, only externally and ceremonially. It's like like the observation of dietary laws or ritual washings. They only wash the outside of the person. Think of it this way. It would be like if you contracted COVID-19 and you were already sick with it and you were trying to get rid of it, get over it by simply washing your hands. It doesn't matter how much you're clean on the outside if you're already infected on the inside. And so that's the problem with all the Old Testament rituals. They only cleanse the outside of that. And so what the passage indicates to you and I is a sense of distance. That God is way back there in this back room and the average Joe never gets close to him, ever. And the priests, they get a little bit closer to him by their ministry in the holy place. And only the high priest gets to go all the way in to his presence, but only once a year and only when he has covered himself and the people's sin with blood. And so this is a pretty bleak picture, a pretty bleak way of relating with God. And so the point here is that as glorious and as majestic as all the earthly tabernacle and symbols and worship were, the religious rituals of the old covenant of worship didn't provide any access to God himself. Instead of access, you would only experience distance, this yawning chasm caused by our sin. And no amount of religious works or religious offerings would ever close that gap between us. So I want to start off this morning having you reflect. How are you experiencing distance from God today? What areas of sin or suffering or selfishness are creating a sense of distance? And do you ever rely on your religious efforts or your moral merits to get you closer to God? I just want to plant that seed. Don't think on it too long, but just hold on to that thought. Where is there distance between you and God today and what's causing it? Now, verse 10 concludes that the old tabernacle and the Old Testament priests didn't open the way for anyone to experience acceptance or access to the very presence of God. But they do point to a time when there's a greater tabernacle and a greater priest who will. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tabernacle tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, sanctify excuse me, for the purification of the outward flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took <coughs> excuse me, the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, the tabernacle tent, and all the vessels, all those items we talked about, used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we saw in this first section of the passage that the earthly tabernacle provides no access to God. And yet, in verse 11 and 12, it responds, But Christ, standing in sharp contrast to the old covenant that cannot uh, provide any access. And so Jesus, the high priest of a new covenant, enters the greater, the heavenly sanctuary, the very presence of the Father where he really exists, not bound by earthly limitations and not by the ceremonial blood of animals, but by shedding his own blood. And doing what? As a result, securing an eternal redemption. Now, I want to look at that word because a lot of times we throw out that word redemption and we don't know quite what it means. And so in the ancient Near East, <clears throat> if someone was a slave, then someone else could pay the redemption price to buy you back, to set you free from slavery and captivity. And so Jesus' sacrifice is this perfect and permanent payment for the debt and slavery of sin, freeing us to dwell with God how long Forever. Our freedom and being in God's presence forever. And so in verses 13 and 14, the author argues, if the blood of animals in the Old Testament symbolically cleansed us outwardly, how much more so does the blood of Jesus, the sinless Son of God, purify our conscience? There's that same word as in the last passage, meaning in turn inwardly and genuinely. And so in verse 15, it transforms us from spiritually dead in our works of sin to receive an inheritance of eternal life, that his blood redeems us. It buys us back from our sin through his death. And so when we think of that idea of redeeming, I want you to picture it this way. When I was uh, 10 years old, I used to play with G.I. Joe toys, as uh, Benji brings up that picture up on the screen. And you'll see on the packaging that I circled it for you, they have this little thing called flag points. These were redemption points. And so what you would do is, if you collected enough of them, you could mail them in and redeem those points for special edition figures and vehicles from their toy line. And so, as a young person, as a 10-year-old child, I would clip out, of course, the points from the G.I. Joe figures, but then I'd also scrounge around for any other toy packaging or any other package, like even like cereal box tops, anything that had a number printed on it in cardboard and just clip them all out, gather them all together, and I mailed it in to the special offer. Do you know that I never received any of those special figures? Why? Because it doesn't matter how many random box tops you cut. You can only redeem it if you pay the right price. All else 
is just scraps of cardboard. And I wonder for how many of us this morning that we are trying to pay God back with simply scraps of cardboard. So how do we inherit the life that God promises to us? The author paints a different picture for us that this new covenant is like a will in verses 16 and 17. Just as you only inherit the blessings and the benefits of a person's last will and testament after they die, a covenant acts similarly. Since the price of sin is death and the symbol of life is blood, then the shedding of blood and death triggers the covenant's inheritance the same way that a will does. So in verses 18 through 21, this old covenant required the constant shedding of blood to cover everything in the Old Old Testament tabernacle worship. Why? Because here's the key, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And this is the foundational principle for how God deals with the distance, solves the the distance of sin and separation from man. You see, people oftentimes in our real world daily lives, we often think that sin is pardoned by things like time. That uh, after I hurt a loved one, that if I just avoid them for a little while and give them some time and some space, eventually they'll forgive and forget. So sometimes we think that sin is pardoned by time. Uh, Many of us think that our sins are pardoned by our apologies. I'm so sorry that I hurt you or that I wronged you. And we expect forgiveness. Or we think that sin is pardoned by our decent lives or simply being released from the debt of sin by our death. But the Bible says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And because our good deeds and our religious works are dead, we saw in verse 14, that means you cannot work for our cleansing and our closeness to God. That we can only receive it as an inheritance, as a gift, like you would from a last will and testament, through the death, through the shedding of blood. And so, here's the thought for you that I want you to meditate on. The cost to bridge the distance of our sin is very high. And what are you using? to pay the toll in place of Jesus? Are you living by religious rituals? By your apologies? By your good intentions? By your good works or by your good life? To excuse you, to pardon you, to give you forgiveness and bridge that gap? Or are you just ignoring the disconnect and the discomfort of being far from God? and trying to fill that empty space with an alternative to Jesus? Are the treasures and pleasures of this world serving as a high priest to mediate your joy and your peace in place of Jesus? If the forgiveness of our sins requires the shedding of blood, why does it have to be Jesus? Isn't that just replacing one blood and one death for another one? Let's wrap up this passage. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are just copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So in verse 23, because there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, the Old Testament high priest would only enter the earthly tabernacle by blood, being outwardly cleansed with sacrifice. But it's just a copy of the real thing. We learned this also last chapter, that entry to the true heavenly tabernacle requires a much better sacrifice. And so that's why Jesus, in verse 24, as the final high priest enters the true holy place, the real presence of God in heaven itself, by a greater sacrifice of his own blood on our behalf. And so verse 25 and 26, unlike the earthly priests who uh, had to continue, continuously make blood sacrifices year after year after year, Jesus doesn't have to do that. Otherwise, he would have repeatedly suffered and sacrificed himself since the beginning of creation because he's eternal God. If he had to do that, he would have to be doing that forever. So instead, and here's the key, he went to the cross to put away sin once for all, it says. That means that it's sufficient. It never needs to be repeated again because it is a greater, a perfect sacrifice of the sinless Son of God. Verse 27 and 28. Just as people only die once, then go to the finality of judgment, Jesus only dies once as a full, sufficient payment for our sins, so that when he returns to claim his kingdom, he doesn't need to die again. Instead, he brings the finality of salvation for all who place their trust and their hope and their life into his hands. And so the problem is distance from sin. The cost is that there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. There's no perfect forgiveness without a perfect sacrifice. And so the solution is that the shedding of Jesus's blood is God's final answer to man's problem of sin, separation, and distance from him. It is a once and for all redemption price that has been paid. Jesus's sacrifice is a perfect and permanent payment for our debt and slavery to sin so that you and I are free to approach God and to dwell with him forever. And so I want you to imagine what would it feel like to realize that someone has taken all of your debt, taken all of your credit card debt, all of your mortgage debt, all of your life debt, all of your sin debt. And he's taken all that debt and he's paid it off in its entirety. How does that make you feel? Especially if you are unable to pay for it yourself. And even when we're drifting from that person, when we are distant from them. Imagine someone coming to you who you are distant from and yet paying off your entire life debt. Robert Robinson is a man who grew up without a loving father. His dad passed away when he was eight years old. And so making matters worse, 
his wealthy grandfather never approved of his daughter's lowly marriage <coughs> to his dad, to Robert's dad. So he disowned Robert entirely, even though he was quite wealthy. He only provided an inheritance to Robert of about ten and a half shillings. To give you a translation, that's about two dollars and fifty-two cents today. And so he had a hard life from a young age. And as a teenager, he had to apprentice himself to a barber in order to support himself and his mom financially. Both his education and his opportunities were quite limited, and he ended up falling in with a very rough crowd and got into a lot of trouble as a young person. But his life began to change when he met the famous evangelist George Whitfield, and on December tenth, almost. Close to the date, this date, this year, in 1755, though December 10, 1755, he he decided on a lark to go listen to one of this uh, George Whitfield's sermons, and as a way of kind of making a joke, he kind of joked to his friends that they would come and and just heckle um, the preacher, and yet as he was listening, he couldn't shake it, he couldn't shake the conviction, and ended up receiving Jesus as his own Lord and Savior. Soon after, he became a minister of the gospel, and in fact, in one of the churches that he pastored, it grew to over a thousand people, which was unheard of in that day and age. And he even is known for writing two very famous hymns, which we still sing to this day. And yet, because he had such a hard life, because he experienced such early loss of his own father, he had a hard time trusting God, trusting that picture of God. As a loving father to him, instead, he often felt distance from the Lord. He became increasingly troubled, and his Christian beliefs started to ring hollow in his mind as he started to drift from God. And so he pulled a Jonah. He began to travel constantly as an attempt to run away from his discomfort, as an attempt to run away from the Lord. Now, on one such trip, he was. Riding along on a stagecoach, and if you know anything about an old-timey stagecoach that's drawn by horses, the seats—you don't have your individual seats. You sit on this bench, and there's two benches, one on each side, and they're facing each other. So he had to look directly at this young woman who was、uh, also riding along on this on the stagecoach, and she kept trying to engage him in conversation,、uh, much to his chagrin and he, and much to his attempts to、uh, keep her from engaging him otherwise. And so what this young woman started to do is. She began to sing, in order to break up the monotony of this long stagecoach ride. What song did she sing? "Come Thou Fount." And as he was listening, he was particularly pierced by these lyrics. Let me read them to you. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Now, as this young woman finished this song, she asked Robert, "What do you think about it?" And you can tell that this was a God moment, because tearfully he responded to her, "Madam, I am the wretched man who wrote that hymn many years ago." Isn't that just like Jesus? When we are wandering and distant from Him, that He reaches out to us in the most unlikely places. Now I don't know if His tears at that moment were tears of repentance or tears of rejection towards God, 
What I do know is that he did return to his faith and his ministry later on in life. But right there, at that moment, what I want to point out to you is that Robert tried to leave God, but God never left him. You see, when Jesus shed his blood, when he died at the cross, it was a once-for-all redemption payment for our sin and separation from him. It is finished, Jesus declares. It is done. And that by placing our faith in this high priest, in his sacrifice, to reconcile our distance, our relationship with God. That Romans 8, 38-39 declares that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers in all of creation, neither the height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The sacrifice of this high priest closes the gap between us. And so I want you to imagine, as Benji pulls up this this picture of the Grand Canyon, I want you to imagine standing at the very edge of the Grand Canyon. There's no trails and there's no equipment. Just imagine. And as you look down over the edge, it's about a one-mile drop, treacherous and unscalable. Now, it's about 20 miles across, and on the other side, you see that God is standing there 20 miles across from you. But it is an impossible distance. It's impossible to cross. When have you felt like that? When have you felt that kind of distance from God? Let that picture come into your mind. And what causes that distance? Is there an area of sin? or maybe suffering, or maybe selfishness, creating that distance. I'm hurt by life, and so I feel far from God. Or I just want to do my own thing and not have anyone tell me what to do, and so I'm far from God. Or I'm so ashamed because of the sins that I've committed, I'm far from God. Is there an area of your life that's creating that distance? your family, your finances, your fears, your future. Or perhaps you are so busy and so distracted that you don't even notice the distance between you and God. But if you were to slow down, which I'm inviting you to do right now, and take a quiet moment, quiet your mind, and reflect, I invite you to sit in that discomfort for just a moment. You're sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon. God is on the other side. What is causing that distance? Now imagine that you put your considerable talents and resources and ingenuity to build a bridge to get across. But no matter how much you work, no matter how much you pay, that your efforts keep crumbling apart beneath your feet. When you feel distant from God, how are you similarly trying to either pay the cost or escape the cost? This is what I mean. Are you trying to pay the cost by your religious rituals? If I pray more or do more or give more or go to church more, then I will be close to God. Are you trying to pay by your good works? If I'm devoted to this cause, if I help others, if I'm a better person, then maybe I can balance the books 
Maybe just a little bit. Are you trying to pay God with your excuses or your blame? Well, it's not my fault. It's because of these other circumstances or these other people. It's because of you, God. You made this happen to me. And so others should pay. Are you trying to pay by your guilt? That maybe if I beat myself up enough, then God won't have to. Some of us try to pay the cost, and some of us try to escape the cost. Some of us realize, I can't pay, and so I'm going to just try to escape the discomfort. How are you trying to fill this empty space with someone or something other than Jesus? And lastly, I want you to picture that there's someone on the other side of the Grand Canyon who has the power and the resources to fill the entire canyon up and build up a strong and permanent bridge and who crosses over to you. Would you invite Jesus to fill that space between this morning? Take a moment to reflect on the magnitude and the intimacy that our high priest paid, our debt, the full redemption price, once for all, so that you are free to approach God and dwell with him forever. We're going to keep these points on the screen as we go into the next song. But instead of singing, I want to invite you to spend some time in reflection, in conversation with God. The problem is distance. The cost is the shedding of blood, death. And yet Jesus is God's final answer to the problem of our sin and separation from him. He bridges the distance between us and God. Heavenly Father, as we take a quiet moment to simply reflect, may the music remind us that though we are prone to wander, though we are, our hearts are filled with distance from you naturally, and you, you are the God of reconciliation, you are the God who bridges the distance. And so would you help us reflect with your Holy Spirit call to mind areas of ourselves and our lives and our hearts that are distant from you today. Help us to see what is causing that sense of distance. Don't let us ignore it any longer. And help us to accurately reflect on the reality of how high the cost is to bridge that gap And what are we doing instead? How are we trying to pay for that bridge to be built on our own? Or maybe we've been crushed and given up and trying to run away from that cost. Filling filling the space with someone or something else. And help us, Lord, to draw into your presence. Help us to see the beauty the magnitude of Jesus' love, Jesus' sacrifice for us, God. May we open up our hands, lift them to heaven, and be recipients of amazing grace today. Oh God, no matter how distant we feel, no matter how much we have left you, you have never left us. And would you flood our hearts with the beauty the love and the peace, the grace 
of Jesus our High Priest. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.